Welcome to Truth Jihad Audiovisual. I'm Kevin Barrett, talking with folks from all over the world who have a lot more accurate information to share than anything you're going to find in the corporate-controlled mainstream. Today, we're going to go over to Iran. I actually was in Iran for five days uh, two weeks ago and talk about what's really going on there as opposed to this ludicrous propaganda that you're reading in the Western mainstream media. My guests today are Satera Sadiqi. Hey, welcome, Satera. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, and Christopher Weaver. Hello, Chris. Hello. All right. So talking about lies in the Western media about Iran, I mean, where do we even start? Um, you know, when I I was over there recently, I I had noticed that the Western reports of the whole the people of Iran are rising up against the government uh never mentioned the size of the of any demonstrations. They would just try to zoom in and show some footage and, you know, some mayhem footage and stuff and then give you some body counts. But they never mentioned the size. Well, when I was over there, I was told that the biggest one in Tehran actually attracted about 600 people and these others were much smaller. So it was not as if the, all the people of Iran were rising up and that the pro-government demonstrations were vastly larger and on and on and on. Uh, basically, the whole story that we were told here sounds completely bogus. So maybe Satara, you could you could you're you're actually in Iran right now, is that right? Yes, that's correct. I'm in Esfahan, which is the third largest city uh, of Iran, and um, yeah, actually, like uh, I had an interview with TRT the fair, maybe it was the first uh, week or two of into the protests that I had a um, an interview with TRT, and I mentioned that from what I observe and I hear from my friends, and uh, because I live here, the protests in my city are very small, and I actually got a lot of death threats and you know a lot of trolls coming to my Twitter because I said the protests are not as big as you like the mainstream media is portraying them. So yeah, it's it's really crazy how. Um, I mean, they always exaggerate things about Iran, but uh, this time it was really something that I, I personally hadn't seen. Mm -hmm. And, and they, they claim basically the way if you know, a person who is paying a little bit of attention, sort of cursory reading of the Western media stories would think that sort of the whole female population of Iran was rising up against the evil, despotic, a male chauvinist theocratic government and ripping off their headscarves. But when I was over there, what I learned was that in October, the government stopped enforcing the headscarf and that some women now, I actually saw some are in public without a headscarf, but it's a very small minority, which would suggest that the vast majority of women in Iran are actually not dying to rip off their headscarves in public. Is is that your impression too? That's ex that's exactly correct. Yes, um, you you see a lot of women um, wearing the hijab. Even the ones that are wearing the uh, the hijab like in a very relaxed way. If you ask them uh, if there was no uh, mandatory hijab, would you still wear the scarf that you have on your head? And they would say yes. That's, for example, one young student, nineteen year old. A college student who actually took part in the protest that we asked on our podcast and she was like yes um i will like yes my hair is showing and i'm wearing it in a very relaxed way but if i had to choose i would still wear the same thing so it's not really an issue mm -hmm. so what is what are the real issues in iran then 
Well, I think right now it's the economy. The value of our currency is uh, depreciating. It, it's, I mean, it's dramatically going down. And that's mainly because of the sanctions that are imposed on Iran. So Iran cannot get the foreign uh, reserve that from selling oil. And it has like there are a lot of difficulties, not to mention the economic mismanagements, too. Um, and there are in, in terms of women's rights, we also have some issues. But um, uh, these are the things that I think they have to like you have to start with the culture. There are a lot of things that. Uh, culturally are not uh, accepted yet and women are very active in pursuing their rights like we have been able to over the years to change the laws uh, uh, through the parliament uh, to make them better for women's rights and this is an ongoing struggle I think like most uh, other societies in the world. And Iran has actually been very successful in terms of uh, raising the educational level among the formerly less educated parts of the population, especially women, uh, since the 1979 revolution, uh, correct? Exactly. Like uh, right now, over 50 percent of college students are women. So that should tell you a lot about how women are an active part of uh, the society. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, yeah. one second. Can I? I need to do something like Okay, well, maybe I'll, while you do something, I'll talk to, to Chris then. So, so yes, yeah, Chris, sure, what are so. your uh, views on what we just heard? Well, I, I traveled to Iran with a delegation uh, with Code Pink in 2019. Yeah. This delegation, because I've always wanted to go see Iran and understand it. And, uh, and so I, I mean, I knew there was. <laughs> A propaganda war against it but this recent campaign is uh is so insane that it's even dragged in people like code like groups like code pink who you would think would be the bulwarks against weaponizing uh, women's rights for the for the use of imperial 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 warfare but what they you know they they themselves were saying oh we stand on the side of the women of iran but when you say the women of iran it's a very confusing it's a very like misleading propagandistic statement because are you talking about the majority of the women of iran which in a democratic sense are all supporting of the status quo so when you start like trying to support the tyranny of a minority that's not it just doesn't seem anyway it doesn't seem viable for the future and at, at, at a minimum but uh, more more disturbing than that, when I went to Iran, I met Satara there with Code Pink, and when I I thought, oh, she's getting death threats, and she was getting Satara was getting legitimate death threats from people who knew her, who were doxing her location, and so I thought, oh well, we uh, Code Pink knows this ju- female journalist in Iran, so why don't I just contact them on the email list of the delegates who went and let them know that we have. Someone we met is being threatened for reporting about the protests. And I thought they would be concerned because women's rights were being weaponized because it seems like they were exploiting the very cause that Code Pink was like using as part of their anti-war message. But instead, they kicked me off the list uh, because this this guy, uh, uh, this Zunas, this uh, uh, professor, Stephen Zunas, is... uh, just he was just totally opposed to the narrative that the protests could possibly be any smaller than were reported and that i you know i was 
I was lying or, or whatever. And they just, they kicked me as I was a participant on the, and I was just alerting them of the death threats of someone we met. So, so they're really dedicated to their, their sort of uh, narrative control. And it's really sad. And uh, I was at the March this weekend and, and Copink's uh, not even allowing, you know, them to speak on general anti-war issues anymore. So you can see the rapid decay of groups like that. Uh, yeah, Code, Code Pink has definitely got some problems. I remember when I was in Tehran, maybe five, five, six, seven years ago, and that was one of the trips I made that Medea Benjamin was also on. And I recall when the subject of 9-11 came up, uh, we had uh, basically a show of hands of the people at a conference. There were maybe, I don't know, 75 to 100 people there. Show of hands to see who thinks that 9-11 was a false flag coup d'etat by the neocons versus, and the Zionists versus who thinks that it was actually a genuine attack by Al-Qaeda. And everybody who was present raised their hand, showing that they knew that it was a false flag coup d'etat by the neocons and the Zionists. Every single person, all of the Iranians, all of the guests, but in Medea Benjamin was not at that particular meeting. Later, she tried, she uh, criticized and complained to the people putting on the event that there were too many conspiracy theorists there who believed that 9-11 was a false flag. She was the only person there who didn't. Uh, so uh, I think there's a, a real problem. Uh, you know, Code Pink is really, let's face it, controlled opposition, like so many other groups are. I mean, some of their work is good, but they're operating under false premises. Uh, well, Satara, did, have you done, had any contact with Code Pink? Or are you surprised by what uh, Chris told us about Code Pink not wanting to talk with you or hear that side of the story? I was I was surprised, but um, I also remember that when like Code Ping and the delegation that Chris was traveling with in Iran had a meeting with us at our faculty in the University of Tehran, um, we were like we had a conversation with media, and uh, I know that she has been very active in opposing sanctions and war and everything. But what I found, um, um, I mean, like I didn't feel that I was uh, very genuine support for women's right. Was that, uh, for example, she was she mentioned to me that she was against. Uh, uh, Masi Alinejad, this, uh, you know, the paid uh, uh, VOA employee who has been a very uh, active um, um, what member of so-called Iranian opposition and calling for any uh, sanction for, for more sanctions for um, even to an extent military intervention to stop the Iranian regime. Uh, but she was saying that she was uncomfortable or she realized that she was not a genuine uh, person when she uh, saw that she was posing in a picture with Pompeo. And I was wondering if it would make a difference if the, instead of Pompeo, we have, for example, Obama. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, uh, does it make a difference? I mean, if she is paid by the U.S. government and the CIA, to create uh, unrest inside Iran. I, as an Iranian woman, don't care if it's a Democrat or a conservative or a Republican who is paying her. Uh, but it's it looks like for some 
so-called leftists in the, in the U.S., it, it makes a difference. I think also, interestingly, the notion of cultural imperialism. I think people aren't picking up on how culture is being weaponized. It's not just women's rights, it's the idea of culture. And Medea, there was a good example of her in that very meeting that Sarah was describing. And she basically expressed publicly when she was talking on a microphone uh, skepticism that women actually want to wear hijabs. And it's like she has no comprehension of what it means to be Muslim and modesty. And it's just like, I keep making this analogy wherever I go so people can kind of relate culturally to what it's like for covering your head. It's just like in America, men can go walk around the street without a shirt on, but women can't. And there's a movement called Free the Nipple, right? Where it's like, oh, women should also be able to do that. Well, if that was instituted as law, the people who would push back on that are the grandmas and the mothers. They would say, no, cover up. That's shameful. You shouldn't dress like that. That's immodest. And that's the same. It's just the cloth just moved up a little further over your head. And that's just another cultural definition of modesty. It has nothing to do with trying to repress women. It has to do with, it has to do with like protecting them from the, you know, aggressive onslaught of male attention. So I don't know if you just understand it from there. I'm not saying everyone in the world should adopt wearing hijabs. I'm just saying, let people do their thing. It's not people's cultures are, generally self-regulating uh, and you don't, we don't, they don't need to be imposed on just like their economic systems don't need to be imposed on by imperialist forces. Well, I actually understand that the hijab, when it came in after the revolution, had many liberating effects on women. Uh, one was that it, uh, along with the cultural changes with the revolution, it led the conservative people, especially from the small towns and so on, who hadn't been educating their children and especially their daughters, suddenly they felt better about sending their daughters to college, which is why the level of women's education jumped so much uh, higher after the revolution. And then I even heard that after the revolution in 1979, there was at least a period where one saw a lot of female hitchhikers in Iran, uh, which had never been around before. And of course, you know, mo- hardly anywhere in the world uh, really would be safe for women hitchhiking. But at the, there was a period where that was common and it had to do with the kind of the cultural effects of hijab and the related ideas of treating women as spiritual beings rather than pieces of meat. Um, and uh, so, Satara, I know it's a kind of a complex topic, but uh, maybe you could give us a, a sense of your, your take on, you know, to what extent is the hijab compatible with uh, raising women's educational level and dignity? Well, I think, um, as you mentioned, because the majority of the Iranian society is still uh, religious and they also wanted to, in, you know, education is... Uh, um, a very important part of both Islam and the Iranian culture. So uh, there were a lot of women who wanted to go to schools, to high schools and to uh, universities, but because it was uh, very difficult for them to do so wearing the hijab and they were deprived of that. So as you said, it was very liberating for a lot of women. Uh, and it's also that because the first Pahlavi uh, banned hijab and forcefully would uh, rip women of their chadors on the streets, uh, it became a symbol of resistance against uh, both that monarchy and uh, imperial, uh, I mean, imperialism, especially cultural imperialism. And 
Um, so women felt they can they can uh, safeguard their Muslim identity and at the same time uh, become the intellectual or the educated um, human being that they want to be. Uh, you know, during the the infamous ban on hijab, a lot of uh, Iranian women had to actually, uh, I mean, Iranian families had to actually immigrate to other countries, especially Arab countries uh, near Iran, like uh, Iraq or Kuwait or uh, other parts uh, of the region, because they wanted to keep uh, wearing the hijab and but uh, appearing in the society, like simply appearing in the society, and they couldn't. So, uh, you know, it became, I mean, the hijab and maintaining this uh, part of their culture and their identity became a symbol of resistance. So, so how about you mentioned that Medea Benjamin and Code Pink probably would not mind a CIA person posing with Obama and then coming into Iran to try to overthrow Iran's government on behalf of the CIA. Uh, but she doesn't like Pompeo doing it. Uh, and that leads us to the question of who is the CIA and its partners working with in this effort to get regime change in Iran? As I understand it, it seems that the two most obvious opposition groups that they're working with are the MEK, one of the world's most notorious terrorist groups, and the monarchists surrounding the family of the former Shah. And that strikes me as a kind of stupid strategy for the Americans to pursue, since neither the MEK nor the monarchists are terribly popular in Iran. Um, how, how does this look from, from Iran? Um, yeah, I mean, the especially the MEK are like hated by all Iranians. It doesn't matter what uh, political orientation they have. They all hate the MEK because they have assassinated more than 17,000 Iranians. And they have also carried out, uh, you know, terrorist attacks, uh, uh, I mean, outside Iran, too. And they worked with Saddam uh, against the Iranian uh I mean, nation uh, during the eight year imposed war. And um, so they are really hated. And like, even the, I mean, one discussion among these so called opposition groups during these recent protests was their concern for the reappearance of the MEK as some legitimate opposition forces. Like, even those uh, Iranian, I mean, a lot of Iranian expats did not agree with that. But what they are doing is a rebranding of a terrorist group and because they delisted the group uh, a while ago so that the funding and the rebranding would become easier. And uh, as I have also mentioned before uh, in my interviews that um, this group was trained by Mossad and CIA uh, uh, during the Bush administration. There is a very good article about, uh, by Seymour Hirsch uh, about how they were trained in Nevada uh, to um, carry out assassination of nuclear scientists inside Iran. And that's, uh, you know, like um, knowledge available to everyone who wants to just uh, read it. So what they're doing is that they're rebranding re these uh, opposition forces, um, so-called opposition forces, which are actually terrorist uh, organization, and they're using them as... Um, like a representative of Iranian nation, but also like they have a very active troll farm that shows up every time there is news about Iran. 
uh, in 2019, um, some cyber um, space uh, specialists tracked uh, a lot of these uh, tweets and hashtags regarding Iran, and uh, they traced them in uh, to a troll farm in Albania, where the service uh, cult is uh, has camps. Uh, and he, like uh, this person, this fake account uh, was retweeted by Trump, and that's how he became very famous. And when uh, everyone mentions, I mean, uh, Twitter realized that this was a fake account, they suspended the account for a while, but they uh, re uh, like allowed it back on Twitter because. Um, I mean, mentioning that because uh, this person is using a fake name for their safety, which is basically not true. Um, the other, uh, on the other side, we have we have also the monarchies who are not popular, and even again, even among these uh, protests that were taking place outside Iran by Iranian expats, uh, you saw conflicts between protesters and the. Uh, a few supporters of the monarch uh, or uh, and like even chanting slogans against him because um i mean like they, like if the majority of iranian people don't want a monarch back they have won this revolution against a monarchy and they established a republic so uh, they might want changes with the current government but they don't want to go back to because nobody has forgotten um the savak the uh, and their tortures and all the things that uh, like how this uh, the second Pahlavi was um, and uh, I mean uh, was supported by uh, CIA and the U.S. Um, against Mossadegh, which was who was uh, like democratically elected. So yeah, it's it's in the memory of uh, the Iranian people. Like a few days ago, I saw a picture of a former Savak, um, which is like the intelligence service of the Pahlavi uh, torturer, uh, appearing after many years because he was very infamous in Iran and everybody hated him, appearing in, at a rally uh, in LA in the US and everyone, including um, those uh, from the Iranian expats who opposed the Islamic Republic were mentioning that, no, you, you can't be here. We haven't forgotten what you did, like how you tortured and killed people. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's for us Iranians, it's so ridiculous. Like, what, what do you think? Like, yeah, we have a lot of economic problems. We have issues with women's rights that we were working on and have been improving over the past decades and everything. But we have not forgotten what the other, uh, like the monarchy did, the um, tortures, the suppression of women's rights. I mean, the, the, the second and last Pahlavi has an interview where uh, he talks about women's rights and he says that women... He doesn't think that women are capable of running a country or that they're intelligent or anything. So, no, we haven't forgotten all those things. And even if the mainstream media shows that, oh, these people want the monarch back, that's not the reality on the ground here at all. Yeah, I would think that if China were trying to overthrow the United States government by sponsoring a descendant of King George, who promised to restore the British monarchy, and then they also were sponsoring um, ISIS or Al-Qaeda as their other main organized group trying to get regime change in Washington. I don't think China would get very far, but they're not stupid enough to try that. <laughs> the Americans apparently are. Oh, well, um, yeah, we, you know, it's it's pretty crazy. But the geopolitical situation is changing. And uh, it That's occurs true. to me that this period 
we're going through where Iran is under all of this maximum pressure, uh, especially the economic pressure, um, is, is probably temporary because there are big economic changes coming in the world and the, this multipolar world seems to be emerging. Um, and uh, Chris, I know you've looked at, at these kinds of issues a bit. Uh, could you talk a little bit about where Iran stands now in terms of this emerging multipolar world? Well, I think there's two interesting things to add in addition to that. First is about the hijab and the way the imperialist forces have shaped Iran. When the Arlavi came into power, and Sater, you can correct me if I'm wrong, like in the 30s, 1930s, they forcefully removed women's hijab like at gunpoint. And so the reason that the Islamic Revolution reinstituted hijabs is sort of a regaining of not only their cultural heritage, but also their political heritage that had been stolen from them by imperialism. And so I think that's that's an important kind of part to mention. Uh, and, uh, you know, in terms of the the future and what this, I, I think Iran represents, because of its stance uh, against the sort of banking cartels, uh, I think it represents sort of an island and uh and they're trying to make sure that that doesn't exist in future global financial transformations because it may be that that island is better off <laughs> and they don't want to they don't want that to be that way that that would be my my uh like mm-hmm. postulation on the the way that that would stand in the future so one of the reasons to to really target iran is because you can't have a truly independent uh, financial system from western domination well iran has had some economic successes uh and technological successes and of course today uh right now it's under maximum pressure and the currency has been pushed down through these kinds of cia and soros efforts as as part of a hybrid war on iran but we sometimes forget the uh, economic successes of the revolution and the improved economy in particular for that part of the population that was left out before the revolution. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, also the, you know, the status of women. I think that's one thing that a lot of uh, people just don't understand that, that, you know, they have, Iran's had the first, had a female vice president before America has even had that. So, um, you know, they, their pilots, their doctors, they're all, all industries have women working in them. And like Satara said, they're a majority of the university students, just like in the U S. Uh, so, um, yeah, the idea that, that this is somehow an oppressive government that's taking power away from women is, uh, is sort of a misconception. And, uh, I think, I don't know, um, what what did you want me to elaborate on? Oh, just the geopolitics uh, going, oh. with what's happening right now. Well, you know, there's a big, Iran is, has ties with uh, Russia and China. They're growing stronger. And as the West becomes less, less easy to make alliances with, I think those ties will, will grow stronger. And um, yeah, uh, it's, it's obvious with things like the Nord Stream bombing coming out completely in the open that, um, that the, those uh, that doing business with the West is a dangerous, a dangerous game. So I think we're seeing a, a sharp divide among allied, allied countries of the world, and Iran is on one side of that. 
And Satara, maybe you could either talk about that, or I'm also interested in your take sort of on this dialectic between Iranian nationalism uh, and uh, Islam. And you're, you know, you're in Isfahan, which is a great ancient uh, Iranian city. And I know there are some uh, people who are weaponized, of course, by the U.S. who are trying to uh, create this conflict between Iran's Iranian national heritage and its Islamic heritage. Uh, so if you could talk about either that or the geopolitics or both, that'd be great. Yeah, well, I think in terms of uh, geopolitics, as Chris mentioned, uh, Iran is forming alliances with the other powers in the world. And uh, even though a lot of uh, European countries, uh, you know, kind of submitted to U.S.'s unilateral sanctions and extraterritorial sanctions and uh, went by it, um, there are countries that are gradually realizing that it's not um, benefiting them in, in, in any ways. And so we have we have countries that are working with Iran and uh, and in terms of economy, as you said, uh, the Iranian economy has been uh, developing despite all these sanctions. And I'm sure you have uh, and Chris also has realized that when you travel to Iran, you don't really understand that this country is under sanctions. This is something that I get uh, from a lot of uh, like foreigners that travel to Iran. Like, are you really under sanctions? Like everything is thriving and people are living their lives and. Um, we have uh, like a health system which is doing better than many other countries, uh, and that's just one example. Uh, but yes, I mean there were uh, there were probably some conservative uh, Muslims uh, inside Iran that wanted to to focus mainly on Islam, and that gave uh, the idea to some people that they were against the nationalism. But the but the what you see in the society and in the um, like the academic system is that, uh, and and just in everyday life here is that uh, people take pride in their is Muslim identity as just as much as they take pride in their Iranian um, like identity. Everyone wants to know, to read, and to be proud of their past. Uh, the kings uh, that uh, like you know uh, ruled over Iran before Islam. Uh, the traditions, like we have uh, a lot of traditions that are not Islamic, they're just Iranian, um, but we keep them alive and we're practicing them and we don't see any contradiction with our Muslim identity. And that includes, uh, maybe I can mention uh, the celebrations that we have for Nowruz, for Yalda and Yalda, which is like the longest night and we have this gatherings and everything. So um, yeah, it's it's a very interesting combination of uh, both uh, identities. And uh, even though for some people it might look contradictory from outside, that's not how Iranians, the majority of Iranians feel about it. And um, uh, like uh, it's actually said by Islamic traditions that nationalism is a sign of uh, faith. If you care about your country and your national identity, it means you have a stronger faith. So it's encouraged by of a religious belief as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand that General Soleimani, who was a very, very pious man, uh, also a symbol of Iran's uh, strength in the world, despite being so badly treated by the world's biggest powers. As he's very, very, he's incredibly popular and has, you know, is, is respected as a martyr by the vast majority of the population. So, 
uh, again, this picture exactly. we get in the West of the whole population, you know, hates the Islamic Republic and wants to overthrow it is obviously false. Uh, uh, did you? Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah. So not only is that image on the West false, but the image that it's like an authoritarian dictatorship, which is always presented when there's leaders or governments that, that the U.S. wants to overthrow. Um, the, the, the Islamic revolution was a people's revolution. It was an uprising of the, dem, uh, the democratic will of the people against this oligarchy that had been installed, this dictatorship oligarchy that was installed by the West. So, so, people often forget that and need to be reminded that the revolution itself was demo- was a democratic process. It was a way of getting, pulling power back to the people from this uh, imperialist uh, leadership that had been imposed. So um, another thing I wanted to mention is Satara and I wrote an article uh, about uh, 10 different disinformation specific uh, lies that were told recently and there's so many more but we just picked some really outrageous ones we still have more we're thinking of writing another article um uh, at the gray zone so people can go can go look at that the, the title of the article is iran's unrest triggers explosion of fake news and uh, i thought maybe if you wanted we could talk about a couple of those examples because some of them are really funny yeah yeah let's go for that <laughs> so so Terry, you want to talk about the rock climber? Uh, well, yes. Um, so there was this female rock climber of uh, of our national rock climbing team, and she was participating um, kind of at this about the same time as the protests were taking place here in um, uh, in an international competition in South Korea, and. Uh, what she describes is that, well, she appeared uh, competing without the headscarf. Um, and what she described about it, uh, it was that um, she was waiting in the uh, changing room and they called on her to go uh, without something I earlier than expected. So she didn't have the time uh, to get her scarf and get prepared. But whatever it was, the reason... That's how she mentioned it. But then there was news on uh, mainstream media by CNN and a lot of others that she's been abducted. Nobody knows about where she, her whereabouts and everything. So she posted on her Instagram that, no, I'm doing fine. I'm with the team and we're just returning to Iran on schedule. And while well, she came back and nothing happened to her and she was welcomed by the Minister of Sports and she was praised for um, like her competitions and uh, achievements. Then a few days later, there was a video showing like going viral and saying that the house of this lady in has been demolished because he took part, uh, she took part in uh, this international competition without the headscarf. But when we, when we looked at it, um, because it was, you know, the, the protests were happening during the almost winter time and uh, uh, the fall. And when you look at the video, it's very clear that it's uh, uh, from much earlier. It's uh, It was filmed probably around June, like the trees are green and the sun is strong and everything. And it wasn't her house. It was uh, her brother's resort somewhere outside uh, a city and it was just uh, like a uh, 30 square uh, meter of the place was demolished because it was illegally uh, built 
And so his brother had gotten warnings a few times that like you have to demolish this part because uh, you haven't you don't have the permission to uh, like uh, build this place. And so uh, for whatever reason, he didn't listen. And I know like it wasn't uh, it was probably traumatizing to see that, that part, which nobody lived in. And it was a very small uh, building inside a garden uh, was demolished. Um, but what the CNN was telling was that uh, this uh, female athlete's house was demolished because she was taking part without the hijab, taking part in the competition part without the hijab. Is that, yeah, it was, I mean, literally, and it, you can, it was, has been determined even in the court records that this demolishing happened four months before the the event. So it's just ridiculous. They were just grabbing grabbing anything totally irrelevant well and if from the american side that's really funny the new york post published this really long uh, article about how of this entire story that satara just laid out uh, because uh, rana ramipur she's a reporter for them had tweeted all of these things and then if you look at the story now and you click on any of the links to like the sources from which are her tweets, they've all the tweets have been deleted. So there's literally a story on the New York Post, which has zero backing from anything because all the links have been deleted. So there's a lot of examples like that, which is, just, yeah, it's a uh, it's pretty unbelievable. I mean, I guess Kevin, uh, you're muted. Is... We can't hear you. Me? No, Kevin. Oh, OK. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about the one where the... the, Yeah, okay, yeah, go ahead for the next one. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) At the funeral, uh, you want to talk about that, Sarah? That was really hilarious. Yeah, well, this picture went viral. Uh, It was tweeted by some uh, user on Twitter and retweeted by famous uh, people, including J.K. Rowling, uh, who has more than 14 million followers. Uh, which shows a father apparently dancing uh, and the caption goes that this uh, Iranian, some saying this Kurdish Iranian uh, uh, father is dancing because uh, at at the grave of his daughter because uh, his daughter, he has promised his daughter to dance uh, uh, at her wedding, but the Iranian regime uh killed her so she he's dancing at her grave and like uh it was very you know like uh tragic and everyone was retweeting it and everything but and if we if you look at it um like the source you will understand that that's a scene from an Azerbaijani uh tv series a drama and uh from a few years ago and the same scene has been used several times one to say that this is a syrian girl that has been killed by uh you know the syrian regime once that it's an iranian uh girl who was uh who died because of COVID, and so this is and and the thing is like people including uh, um, verified azerbaijani a person uh, retweeted the same thing and said, I know this this actor, and this is a famous series here. It's not happening in Iran or anything. So, like, they totally made this up and it went viral and nothing happened. Like, uh, I mean, even like a lot of people mentioned that to Twitter, but the post is still there. Yeah, it's interesting with all the concern for fake news that 
the uh, so-called uh, fact checkers and so on don't seem to care so much about these kinds of outrageous propaganda lies against Iran. Um, we have Not time for all. maybe one or two more if you want to go down that list. Well, the one about yeah, Chris, do you have the claim the claim that like the protesters are just turning out for food? The like the, there's always this trope, especially with Iran, but I I've heard it even with the anti-war rally in D.C. Like that people are just turning out for like treats for food. And, uh, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, Satara, I'll fill in uh, if there's something you missed. I'm looking uh, at it. Okay. So yeah, like there was this image of thousands of people taking part in a, a pro-government rally at the same time. Like, I mean, uh, about the same time as the protest because they wanted to show the world that they're not part of the so-called protests that are happening. And uh uh, Barbara Slavin uh, mentioned, uh, like, replied to one of those images and said, uh, but you know that these are rented crowds that have been promised lunch. And, I mean, it's crazy how you think thousands of people, like, people in Iran are not starving, despite what you might think, and you're not coming out in winter uh, to just get food. And even if you, but there are no pictures that would suggest that, and I have taken part in the for uh, rallies, for example, for the anniversary of the revolution and people actually sell food because that's the time like, you know, uh, a lot of people come and that's the best time to sell treats. And that's a way to for some people to make money. Um, and I have never seen free treats. But even if you do see that there are some treats being served, as you probably know, that's a part of the Islamic culture and Iranian culture to uh, you know, like uh, give out food to people. It happens in religious ceremonies and uh, it doesn't mean people go to those religious ceremony only because they want to get food. They can have food at their homes. They don't have a problem uh, well, um, providing food. And it, it becomes from a very um, arrogant stand that, uh, and um, uh, I, I, I think of um, like, it's a, ch- it's the way people choose to be ignorant on other cultures. They don't want to understand. They want, they're want. they not open to understanding another culture. They don't want to understand, for example, that there is a diversity of opinions in Iran. There are a lot of people who are pro-government. There might be some people who are, I mean, there are definitely some people who are not supportive of the government. But if, if you see a large crowd, which is very normal, happening every year, a couple of uh, or a few times every year, that people uh, want to come out and just show their support for um, their revolution. It doesn't mean that they are promised lunch. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to insult people like Barbara Slavin, but if if that's what uh, encourages people, some people to come out uh, on the streets, that's not how Iranian people are encouraged. They don't come from lunch. Well, and additionally, like that's like you said, because uh, you know the government of Iran is a, a theocratic organ. It's part of, it's part of the religious view or, or institution um, providing food, uh, uh, you know, would be seen as some sort of uh, religious act of religious piety. So even if it was provided, it wouldn't be something that would be attracting people, but it isn't. That's the whole thing. It's not even there. Um, and I made a calculation, a simple calculation like, uh, I think it was like a hundred thousand people. If you fed them a hundred gram meal, which is like a small, tiny meal, but uh, I mean, I assume it would be enough for people to 
feel like they ate something. That would be 11 tons of food. And so these protests were at least 10 times that size. So you're talking about like 110 tons of food. You would have to see evidence of that. And one interesting thing where Iranians do feed each other out in public uh, is the Arba'in walk, which happens in Iraq, uh, where a lot of Shia come and they walk like 50 miles over the course of like a week. And uh, and there's just free food along the way. People feed e- feed each other because it's part of like a, a religious expression. And there's if you look at photos of the Arba'in walk, you cannot see more than 10 without seeing delicious food. It's very evident there's food there. And people don't even go on that walk for the food. It's a religious, uh, people would probably pack their own food if they had to. It's a, it's a, it's part of a religious process. So there's just so many ways in which that's a bigoted statement. And uh, I would say like for Americans, it's, it's like saying people go to church for the donuts or whatever. If you happen to go to a church, which serves donuts and coffee, like that's, it's like, why, that's really insulting to say to someone that they go to church. Well, they, they, mean, they tried to get to vaccinate people by giving them free donuts. Yeah. I don't know how well that worked. Exactly. I'm not I sure how good so. that was for their health. Uh, <laughs> okay, we pre- maybe have time for one more. Uh, so what's what's the well, the fifteen thousand? I think is probably the, there's this trope that fifteen thousand prisoners were killed by or were going to be executed or were. In, even in prison, I think the notion was there were 15,000 prisoners who were about to be killed, which there were never 15,000 protesters in prison at a time. They may have been occasionally held and then released, and then the accumulation of those events created something like 15,000, but I even doubt that. I don't think there were that many protesters in Iran. um, Yeah, so Satara, you want to describe how that was false, that, that notion? And who was involved? Uh, yeah, well, so, um, yeah, the the news that went viral was that 15,000 peaceful protesters are going to be executed by the so-called or quote-unquote Iranian regime. And, um, and, you know, when it comes to Iran, you can just say anything and everyone... Uh, on social media can believe it apparently but what was uh, and I mean that was totally false and there weren't as many as uh, Chris said there weren't uh, that many protesters in the first place and even if there were they were not arrested like not everyone was arrested and uh, not uh, executed or um, anything like that Um, and it it probably started because the parliament was uh, like the the members of the parliament issued a letter and asked for um, severe punish, punishment for those who carried out terrorist attacks because there were also terrorist uh, attacks inside uh, Iran during these protests. Uh, that probably um, like prompted uh, uh, a fake piece of news. Um, but what is very outrageous by- about it was developed by, uh, you know, uh, intelligence or NATO affiliated, like people who worked for the Carnegie Endowment, uh, Kareem Sajjadpour. Uh, yeah. That was the first guy who tweeted it, and he works for the Carnegie Endowment, which is like a NATO operation. So, uh, you know, there. Yeah. These were orchestrated lies they weren't just they didn't happen to be someone tweeting by mistake this was given birth and they were retweeted by they were i mean not retweeted like 
Uh, Justin Trudeau posted about that. Uh, Elijah Wood posted about that. Justin Trudeau had to remove the tweet after uh, he found out that this was uh, basically just a lie, but everyone has a screenshot of that. Um, uh, but Elijah Wood, I don't think he ever deleted that tweet and it's still there. Interesting. Yeah. Well, they, they get away with lying nonstop about Iran, but somehow it doesn't really seem to have all that much effect. I don't think the West is all that excited about waging all-out war on Iran. Uh, even the Israelis uh, seem to be somewhat hesitant, and there are reasons for that. But we don't have time to go into the military balance and all of that because I think we've hit the end of this hour, but maybe we can do another show sometime uh, thank you so much, uh, Setara Satiki and Christopher Weaver. It's been uh, very enlightening. I'm sure even more enlightening to people who haven't really been following this issue and are probably pretty shocked at, at the lies they've been hearing. So thank you uh, and God bless. Uh, look forward to doing it again, inshallah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Check you. Our- okay, take care. Bye.